From WUB News, you're listening to The Outlet, where campus meets community. I'm Maddie Young. And I'm Beth Greenman. Each week on The Outlet, we bring you stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. This week, we're finishing up the three-part series about Ohio University's presidential search. We'll also tell you about a new meditation room in Alden Library whose goal is to bring together the diverse campus. This is a really a continuation on that concept because your mind just gets so cluttered with the project that you're focusing on or maybe some things that are going on in your personal life that you just need four or five minutes to clear your head. And so a meditation room provides a space for that. We'll give you all the details and more coming up right here on The Outlet. The Ohio University Board of Trustees is expected to vote on a new president tomorrow. The only candidate left in the running is Dwayne Nellis. In the final part of the presidential search series, reporter David Lee explores what qualifications someone needs to become a university president, including our own in Athens. Before we look at what it takes to become OU's president, it's helpful to first ask the question, what does it take to become a university president in the country? Well. Most university presidents have a doctoral degree and a career in higher education. According to a Gallup study, only 20% of hired presidents come from non-educational backgrounds, frequently having worked for a business or a nonprofit. More higher ed institutions are hiring consultants to help find prospective candidates. This is all based on a report by the American Council on Education. The association believes that a university president's office is becoming a more complex position leading to the increasingly extensive search process of looking for someone who is older and more experienced compared to past presidential candidates. Because with uh, the shared governance model in higher education, they have a lot of stakeholders. Uh, you know, the faculty is very important, the students, and the larger community. So uh, being able to listen to all those stakeholders and also being able to uh, provide a vision of where they want to take the university to go are very important. And as a state university, you also have to be able to uh, articulate that vision to uh, state policymakers as well as the federal policymakers. That was the University System of Ohio Chancellor John Kerry. Kerry says that the quality of education should be the top priority of a university president. OU English professor Joe McLaughlin was on the presidential search committee, and he's in agreement with Kerry's position that a university president's first priority should be the students. I I thought that we needed a a strong academic leader who could um, participate in the intellectual life of the university. Ohio University followed a pretty standard model in their search for the 21st president to head the institution. The university hired a search firm and a consultant. Additionally, the university formed a search committee made up of Board of Trustees members, faculty, staff, students, and the president of the Athens City Council. Student Senate President Hannah Clauser says the committee ensured that students had a voice in the search process. There's only three students on the search committee, but they did a good job on campus making sure that there was more students brought into the conversation to looking at the four finalists. So we had a panel of about 16 to 20 students that met for an hour with each finalist. Clauser was not the only one satisfied with how the committee involved all groups during its meetings. 
Professor McLaughlin also recognizes the search committee's all-embracing approach in drawing up its recommendation to the board of trustees. I am thoroughly impressed and appreciative um, at the at the degree to which our trustees worked really hard to listen to input from the Ohio University community. Um, and that's not only people on the search committee, um, it's, 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 it's much wider. And it's, it's a great thing, and un- unfortunately, it's an increasingly rare and, and special thing because too many universities across the country and, frankly, in Ohio um, are doing these presidential searches in ways that are uh, much more secretive, much less transparent, and, and, and frankly, um, do not involve the whole community. That sends a very powerful message um, to the next president um, about what kind of what kind of university this is. If you want to know whether Dwayne Nellis becomes the next president of OU, look out for a live stream of the Board of Trustees announcement on the university's website tomorrow. The board will meet at Dublin's campus at 10 a.m. to vote on the appointment of OU's 21st president. For the outlet, this is David Lee. Ohio University Housing and Residence Life tried to involve students every weekend to take part in Late Night on the Green rather than the bar scene. I'll discuss the influence on students who participate and how to keep it entertaining enough for people to come back. It's hard to believe that this is coming from the Living and Learning Center on a Saturday night. But this is a reoccurring event. It's late night on the green. Loud music, pizza and snacks, video games, and karaoke are just some of the activities they have to offer. For some students like Maria Lubinovic, it's a way to find students like herself that don't drink. Never drank in high school, and then never drank in college, so I wasn't really into that in the first place. I was like a band kid, okay, so like understand that like Megan Nerd needed somewhere to go on the weekend. And it was fun to have a group of friends who also are kind of in that, in like the same mindset that I have. Um, and uh, so like half of my friends do go out. And like, I'm kind of sad that I miss out on that, but I also appreciate that my other friends like kind of respect that I don't really want to go out and drink. Surrounding yourself with people that have the same interests as you is what makes Late Night on the Green so successful. A huge role in the event is the atmosphere. It's filled with different crafts and activities that are changed up every week to keep a new crowd coming. One of the most popular events was the silent disco. Kenzie Fisher, one of the staff members, helped organize the event. So last semester we had something called a silent disco, which means there was two DJs at the top, and everyone has these big headphones on, and the music is playing in their headphones, but no one else around them can actually hear it. So it was like one big dance party on the floor with everyone having their own headphones, their own music station, and stuff like that. Switching the activities up from week to week, from a group nap to dirty Pictionary, and providing tasty snacks is what Kenzie says keeps late night recurring each Saturday. Having something different, definitely, yes, and then also free food, definitely. It's just something to do for people that don't want to go out on the weekends or want to stop somewhere before they do go out.
These are the singing voices of Maggie Campbell and Maria Lubinovic, who are regulars to Late Night. Maggie Campbell, a sophomore, shares her favorite activity attending late night. She believes that this is a fun way to not focus on the drinking that surrounds the campus. Changing ourselves, honestly. Uh, they have like different crafts, but in general, like we'll mix it up depending on how we're feeling. Uh, like we played like Cards Against Humanity, but now we're doing karaoke. I mean, like, or sometimes we'll just chill. We took a big group nap in between a Cards Against Humanity game just because we could. Having an environment for students that can make friends with people with the same morals is effective for making Late Night on the Green such a popular event. For The Outlet, I'm Maddie Young. A new meditation room at Ohio University is attempting to bring together the diverse campus. Our reporter Elise Haymond has more details on the room and how it came to be. Inside the room, there's only silence. I'm sitting in the corner, the walls are a cream color, and the carpet's a sandy brown. There are a few chairs and an empty bookshelf, and me. Me and silence. I'm in a new meditation room on OU's campus. It's similar to ones you would find on any other campus, so what makes it so special? The fact that it's on the fifth floor of Alden Library. The library, especially its quiet fifth floor, just got even quieter. This is all thanks to Mohammed Hashim Pashtun. He is a PhD student studying civil engineering here at Ohio University. His idea for the meditation room blossomed when students started telling him they didn't feel like they had a proper space to meditate or pray. Um, and of course that made me kind of a question about that, that okay, how can we resolve that issue? Uh, we started discussing about that at that time at Student Senate and discussions went up some time. That was three years ago when Hashim was serving as the Commissioner for International Affairs on Student Senate. Unfortunately, the project never got off the ground before the academic year ended. Then, last year, when he became president of the International Student Union, he brought up the idea again with university administration. When I pitched the idea to Dr. Jenny Hall-Jones, and because she's the advisor to the Student Senate, so she remembered me pitching the idea at that time also. And she's like, yeah, what happened? And I was like, well, you know what? No one continued that, that, that initiative. And that's how we got started with that. This time, things started moving forward. Dean of University Library Scott Seaman liked the idea of the meditation room because it was in tune with the library's overall mission of promoting intellectual growth and the advancement of knowledge. Dean Seaman says that the meditation space will be beneficial to students who need to refocus while working on long projects and believes the space could improve academic performance. This is a really a continuation on that concept because your mind just gets so cluttered with the project that you're focusing on or maybe some things that are going on in your personal life that you just need four or five minutes to clear your head. And so a meditation room provides a space for that. Despite their different motivations for supporting the meditation room, Dean Seaman and Hashim were able to come together and create something that serves an even wider range of students. Some of the things that I wanted to put in place was my first and foremost uh, goal or vision for this room was to make sure it's welcoming for everyone. And by everyone, I mean literally everyone. Student, faculty, staff, community member. That was my first goal because if I even left out one person on this campus, my project is not completely accomplished. 
Hashim hopes that the room provides a comfort zone where people of all backgrounds and religions can come and relate to each other. The meditation room is available to all students during open hours of the library. For the outlet, I'm Elise Hammond. Being a first year out of state student is hard enough, but add being in a relationship to that as well. The outlet's Jacques Prinup shares with us the struggles some face when trying to keep their long distance relationship alive and how they do it. Hi! Leaving for your first year of college is no easy task. Saying goodbye to your family, your best friends, and the home that you grew up in is a challenge in itself. As if those events aren't hard enough, add being an out-of-state student to the equation as well. Freshman Jessica Herson reveals she's from New Jersey, struggling to find her place at OU. She says the transition is hard, but making those visits home makes it that much better. Um, I think the transition of being out-of-state, especially at Ohio University, is hard, just because it's majority in-state. And meeting someone out of state is kind of rare and it's different because coming here, a lot of kids know each other and they went to high school together. They room with a friend from high school that like or like a town over that their friend knew. Um, so the distance is hard, like wanting to go home, like when you see your friends coming home on the weekends and having friends able to visit them. And that's it's hard, but it definitely makes going home a lot better. Being from another state is hard, but imagine dealing with that and a relationship. 14 million people in the U.S. alone identify as being in a long-distance relationship. And from that 14 million, 32.5% of them are college relationships. If that sounds challenging, Jesse explains just how challenging that is. I think, like, the hardest thing would have to be um, just, like, the aspect of, like, missing your partner. Like, you see people in relationships and, like, people, like they go out with their partners. Like, they get lunch with them. It's like... Sometimes, like, you're not able to FaceTime or, like, talk as much as you want to. It's just, like, a lot of, like, communication. If there's, like, a communication issue, you're going to have issues. While Jesse feels that communication is the most vital part of her relationship, Chloe Power, who's a freshman from Chicago, has a different outlook. Trust. It's hard to be able to trust someone so far away and hope that the love you're giving them is enough. So you just have to trust that, like, what you're doing is enough and that the relationship is working. So how does she know if her relationship is working? Chloe says her partner Kyle attends The Ohio State University in Columbus, which isn't far from Athens. We normally take turns with me going one weekend and him coming here since it's only an hour away. Although Chloe and her partner have a schedule they follow, they aren't the only ones who feel visits are necessary. Dr. Bill Rollins, Stalker Professor in the School of Communication Studies and an expert on private relationships, shares his insight. I think that, I think that long distance relationships are always hard because it's, it's great to be in each other's presence and um, I think it's wise to try to schedule and agree upon times across the semester when you can spend time together. Um, try to understand who it's easier for to travel. And a lot of students in my classes do that. And when you do make that trip to see your partner, make sure you focus on the biggest issue, communication. I think one of the most important things to do is to, when you are in each other's presence, to talk about how it feels to be separated and what would make you feel better. I think, I think that's very important to do. And while you're in each other's presence, 
you can you can understand from someone the best time during the week for them to talk or you know what they would hope to receive from you or how available they would want you to be and you can also negotiate it face to face i think that would be really important being a freshman in college absolutely comes with multiple challenges and being from new jersey and chicago doesn't make it easier but Jesse and Chloe have something that's very close to their heart to make it all worth it. For the outlet, I'm Jacques Printup. Bye, I miss you. Bye, I miss you too. Ohio University has many sports teams you may not know about. Synchronized skating, women's water polo, and men's soccer, just to name a few. But while other universities may give out athletic scholarships for these sports, some of these athletes at OU don't receive the extra help. The outlet's Liam Nehemiah has more. Ohio University sophomore Alexis Williams wakes up earlier than most students to get in her workout. I mean, it still sucks because you have to go to bed a little bit earlier, so you have to like plan your time more wisely for like schoolwork, but getting up at 5.30 doesn't really bother me that much anymore. Williams is a part of the OU women's rowing team. She's at Ping Recreation Center at 6 a.m. every weekday to train with her teammates. This right. day, they're on the rowing machines. Ready, attention, row! got this, Snowy! This is a sprint. They're quick. After the team's practice, Williams has a full day. I get up, we are here, I'm here until like 7.30 ish and then I go home shower and then I'm at class until like five every day and then I go to the library from five until dinner and then I go to sleep. And even though Williams and her teammates practice between 10 to 20 hours each week to be competitive, none of them are getting scholarships to compete in the sport. OU women's rowing is not an official NCAA varsity sport at OU like it is at some other universities. If a sport is not sponsored by a university's athletic department, then students sometimes make their own team. OU club-level teams also include men's soccer, women's lacrosse, and equestrian. But that means students run the teams by themselves. We have somebody who handles all of our finances who is a team member. We have a coach who is a fifth-year student. I do all of the registration for everything. Uh, Cheyenne does all of the fundraising for everything. It's definitely eye-opening to the fact that we have to supply people where an NCAA team just has people paid to do all those things. That was Caroline Siegert, the secretary for the women's rowing team. Siegert handles registering the team for boat races that would normally be done by paid coaches at universities that sponsored the sport. Another challenge for club sports is funding. Each member of the women's rowing team pays around $65 each month to be on the team on top of hundreds of dollars each member pays for special trips. Graduate assistant Nathan Lawless helps oversee club sports at OU, including the women's rowing team. He sees the struggles firsthand. It's like you said, there's scholarship players for a lot of these varsity athletics, and these students are here putting themselves through school, um, but they're still competing. So for them, they have to manage their grades because they don't have that tutor that a D1 athlete might have, but they're also putting more money in. Longless says OU is able to provide club sports like women's rowing with some funding, but in a lot of cases, it isn't enough, and club sports have to fundraise the rest. 
The women's rowing team requested $20,000 to go on a training trip to Florida and a race to Philadelphia. Lawless says the campus recreation department was only able to give them 2000 of that. But Lawless also sees how club teams persevere. And even though they don't have all the funding resources that a varsity athletic athlete might have, such as a scholarship or fantastic facilities or be able to practice whenever they want, these students still want to be on their teams and keep playing these sports that they're passionate about. For the new students on the women's rowing team, like freshman Maddie Laflamme, they might not still be at OU without having the support of the team. This has kind of become my family home away from home because I'm from like pretty far away, so this has kind of helped me transition to like being far away from home. So no, I can't really imagine college without it. President and head coach for the team, Carly Dumas, says not everyone can handle the high time commitment a club sport like women's rowing can have. But for the ones that do continue, it's because they really do love the team and sport. We, everyone loves each other, yeah. so like we, it's like not hard to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning because you know you have all your friends with you. And the team isn't alone in their challenges. There are 104 universities that have varsity women's rowing teams, according to the NCAA. But there are also 165 club teams that compete at the club level, like OU Women's Rowing. Dumas says to be able to compete at a high level against other teams like varsity sports is what makes the experience special for herself and her teammates, despite the struggles. For the outlet, I'm Liam Niemeyer. One, two, Southeastern Ohio has many venues for live music. Each one has a unique atmosphere and a specific process for acquiring performers. The outlet's Matt Morris takes us backstage to catch a glimpse of how an Ohio University graduate student draws audiences. Check one, two, check one, one, two, check. Ooh, that's a lot. I can In a forgotten Southeastern Ohio community that once thrived during the Industrial Revolution, remains a gem that an Ohio University alumnus is working to preserve and maintain. Adam Shriver is the executive director of the Twin City Opera House in McConnellsville. His job is to keep the old theater, which is the centerpiece of the community, relevant in the 21st century. When people have 50-inch flat-screen, high-definition televisions in their homes with full surround sound and you can experience what you used to be able to experience out somewhere in public in your basement. It's hard to get people after they worked 40, 50 hours and drug the kids all over God's green earth for ball practices and recitals to get them to say at the end of a long week, let's go out and go do something. And that's tough. I mean, it is a tough thing. Jobs and businesses have left the area, but people see the Opera House as one of the few things left. The community shares a sense of pride toward the iconic old building. This was a bustling town 100 years ago. 50 years ago, it was still a big community with lots of money, and now it's not. And this is one thing that I think people have clinged on to to say, we are not going to let it go. We want this place to be here for future generations. So. Yeah, we will come out and support these things because we feel so strongly that we need to keep this part, this identifying part of our culture and our community here. It's an asset and we want to keep it. Shriver is pushing for the Opera House to be identified as the country music capital of southeastern Ohio. 
The Ohio Valley Opry has rented the theater once a month for 15 years and have done very well at drawing famous country musicians into McConnellsville. Shriver rents the theater to other local music promoters who bring in local musicians. Well, for us, local stuff is better. You know, anytime we can put local people on our stage, like the show that's tonight with the Twin City Jamboree, I mean, that's a lot of local and regional acts. People will come to see their friends and, and folks per perform on stage. O.J. Sidwell is a local musician who coordinated the Twin City Jamboree. Performing at the Opera House since he was 10 years old, he loves the setting, the atmosphere, and feels honored to play on the same stage that country music legend Hank Williams once graced. Sidwell says it's not about the money, it's more for fun. And putting on a show takes... Lots and lots of planning. Lots of phone calls and getting everybody together for practice and just knowing musicians that I've known for years and years. You know, a lot of these guys I play music with full time, just guys I've known forever. 2017 is a special year for McConnellsville. It marks the Village Bicentennial and it marks the 125th anniversary of the Twin City Opera House. Shriver has scheduled monthly events beginning in March that will bring a variety of entertainment at affordable prices. For The Outlet, I'm Matt Morris. People across the nation are responding to President Donald Trump's recent executive order on immigration. Outlet reporter Catherine Mori caught up with Ali Kaladi, an Iranian student studying at Ohio University, to hear his take on the disputed ban. When I sat down with Ali Kaladi, I couldn't help but notice the amount of knowledge radiating from him. An accomplished neuroscientist, he set aside a book and immediately began talking about his work, breaking down the structure of the brain and mentioning papers he's written. Redirecting him to the questions I had prepared for him proved to be a challenge as I could sense the passion he had for the field of science he could seemingly talk about all day long. Coletti is a 27-year-old Iranian student at Ohio University, currently in pursuit of a Ph.D. in physics. This Ph.D. is in addition to two master degrees completed in Iran and at OU, as well as an undergraduate degree from Iran. Ali is one of the faces of potentially thousands of people across the world the President Donald Trump's recent travel ban may affect. Having friends and family in different countries, he's had a first-hand look at what the ban could mean for people close to him. Throughout the interview, he couldn't get past the uncertainty of what lays ahead in the future. It was so sad, and we were so shocked. Since we learned there is a ban coming, me and all my friends, we've been so stressed out. And we didn't know what we did not know what to do. On Thursday, a three-judge panel in the U.S. Appeals Court rejected Trump's executive order suggesting the ban did nothing to advance national security. The court says the administration presented, quote, no evidence, end quote, anyone from the seven banned countries committed any terrorist attacks within the United States. In response, President Trump tweeted, quote, see you in court, the security of our nation is at stake, end quote, after the court's ruling. This has left people to wait for the next move from the White House and prepare themselves for the result. This stuff could take lives away, directly and indirectly. I gave him the story of Fatima. Fatima is like four months old, she needed a surgery, not a heart transplant, just a surgery. And she couldn't make it because of the visa ban. And when her father called the embassy, they were like, 
try again in 90 days. And he told them she may not have a 90 days. You see, like, this is like taking lives away. This is like affecting innocent people, even in the U.S. The temporary ban's goal was to stop travel in order to make the process for gaining entry into the United States more difficult. Ali is here on an F-1 student visa, which allows him one entry into the United States. This means that if he leaves for whatever reason, he will not be allowed to return back to the States without reapplying and getting reapproved for a second visa. Maybe you don't have an Iranian friend, but this is affecting people's lives. People could die. Careers could be ruined. Families could be separated. I will miss my sister's wedding. My, my friend's parents, they couldn't come after three years. You see, like, the effect is very large. The executive order claims that in order to protect Americans, the United States cannot allow anyone to enter the country who doesn't support the Constitution and may cause violence. What this means is the order indefinitely bars Syrian refugees from entering the United States, suspends all refugee admissions for 120 days, and will block citizens of Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen from entering the United States for 90 days. People will tolerate the, the pressure to some point, then we will leave, you know. This country may not collapse when we leave, but if all of us leave, then it will be some sort of an influence. According to other news outlets, the president may pursue a similar second executive order, which is phrased differently to accomplish the same goal of enacting a strict travel ban. Trump's current executive order is expected to either be sent to the Supreme Court for further review or postponed while a second order is in the works. If the order advances to the Supreme Court and they vote in a tied 4-4 to -four decision, the lower court's decision will stand. This country has its ups and downs, and it's been the same all over the history. If you say only this event, like this ban, is going to affect everything, that's not true. Things might change, you know. The president might, you know, renew his mind and, you know, there might be a new order. So you never know what's happening. And I do believe still this, the U.S. is the land of freedom, still. For The Outlet, I'm reporter Catherine Mori. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for joining us. The Outlet is co-produced and co-hosted this week by me, Beth Greenman, and Maddie Young. We're edited by Atish Baidia, Susan Tebbin, and Allison Hunter. Adam Rich is our technical assistant. Our theme music is performed by Ryan Gabos. Subscribe to The Outlet on SoundCloud and iTunes, or find us online at woub.org. You can follow us on Twitter at outlet underscore W-O-U-B. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. Thanks for listening.